You're listening to Around Comics, episode 148. Listening to another Monday edition of Around Comics, the Comic Culture Podcast. I'm Christopher Neesman, and coming up on today's episode, we talk with Douglas Walk. He is a comic book critic and the author of Reading Comics How Graphic Novels Work and What They Mean. We'll also be getting you ready for the week ahead with new single issue trade paperback and DVD releases. Tom Caters is back as the Answer Man. Jeremy Mullins has his weekly webcomic recommendations. John Mayo takes a look inside the sales numbers of the top 100 trades. And Will Pfeiffer is back to talk DVDs. All that and more is next on Around Comics. This week's guest is Douglas Walk. He writes about comics and music for publications including the New York Times, Rolling Stone, the Washington Post, Salon, Pitchfork, and The Believer. He's also the author of Reading Comics, How Graphic Novels Work and What They Mean. Reading Comics hits the mark between comics expert and newcomers when it deconstructs why we read and what we can take away from comics. In addition, Douglas includes reviews and commentaries on such creators as Chester Brown, Steve Ditko, Will Eisner, Frank Miller, Alan Moore, Grant Morrison, Charles Burns, and more. Around Comics is happy to welcome Douglas Walk. Uh, Douglas, uh, thanks for spending some time with us. How are you doing this evening? Good. Thanks for having me on the show. When your book came out, I actually picked it up and enjoyed it quite a bit. It's uh, uh, it, it's interesting because all comic fans kind of consider themselves comic book critics in, in one way or another, but you actually do it as, as part of your living. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what makes a comic book critic? I have the best job in the world. Uh, you know, I get, to, I get to sit around my house, read comic books and listen to music all day and get paid for it. You know, actually, I get paid to tell people what I think about it. That's, that's the even better part. Um, what makes a comic book critic? I mean, I've, I've been writing comics criticism professionally in one way or another since probably 1993 or so. Uh, I started out doing some comics reviews for uh, a music magazine for CMJ and Music Monthly and then started writing about cartoonists for this Australian art magazine called World Art. And more and more more of it over the years, uh, the big change probably happened when I I essentially uh, went to grad school to become a comics critic. Uh, there was a program that was at Columbia University for mid-career arts journalists that, uh, that they had fellowships that they gave to eight or ten people a year. 
and I did that, and I, I wanted to really turn myself into somebody who could write about comics better than I had been, learn more about, to, to know what I was talking about a little bit more, both in terms of writing about comics and in terms of writing, and in terms of thinking about comics more broadly as visual narrative and the way that certain other kinds of things are visual narrative and figuring out how that would work. Comics, I, I, I don't know if there's, you know, you can pinpoint when comics were quote unquote elevated into something that could be critiqued. Uh, a lot of people, you know, point to kind of, you know, mid 80s, 85, 86. Um, it, w when do you think that comics, you know, became, became a, a medium that was ready to be uh, critiqued and reviewed? Probably the first time the first caveman uh, drew two consecutive uh, pictures on the wall. <laughs> you're, so you're a purist. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, there are obviously a lot more art comics now in the last five years and ten years and twenty years than there were before that. There are a lot more comics projects being published in English that are based on their creators' desires and artistic whims. Um, more than sort of the, the, the dictates of some sort of pre-existing franchise. But there's always been something interesting to say. I mean, even, even within those restrictions, you know, there's, you can say lots and lots of interesting things about Carl Barks' Donald Duck comics, about Floyd Gofferson's, uh, you know, Mickey Mouse comics. But there's a lot to say about pretty much anything in the medium that's interesting. Uh, and that's one of the things, kind of getting back to, you know, all all comic book fans kind of consider themselves comic book critics in, in one way or another, whether it's the just the base of, I like this, therefore I read it, I don't, therefore I don't. Um, what, what do you really look for? How do you critique a comic? Do you go with the standard um, writing, then art, then the two as a whole? I mean, what what kind of process do you use to say, this is how I critique a comic book? There's lots of different uh, approaches I take, and it, it really varies a lot depending on, first of all, what audience I'm writing for. If it's a, you know, a general interest sort of magazine, if I'm doing something for the New York Times or the Washington Post, I'm going to have to walk people very carefully through, like, here's what it is, here's what it means historically, here's how to look at it. Uh, if I'm writing something for a really, really inside baseball audience, like when I did uh, that column last year about 52, uh, that was for people who pretty much knew what they were looking at already. Uh, what interests me, it's not the same thing that interests me about every comic. Some things are really meaningful to me in terms of just the, the storytelling flow. Sometimes there are things that are really meaningful to me in terms of what they look like or in terms of what they read like. Uh, I, I don't have a single metric that I hold up everything against, but pretty much I try to figure out what my reaction to something is and then how to communicate that reaction in a way that somebody who's reading it is going to potentially care about. I mean, there's there's constructing the argument about the work itself, but then there's trying to, if you're writing a review, if you're writing a critique, if you're writing a piece of criticism, it also has to be something that people are going to want to read in itself. Even, like, ideally, the goal is to write something that will be interesting to read, even if the person who's reading it has no interest in what I'm writing about specifically. And I can imagine that whenever you're doing a piece for, you know, say, the New York Times, uh... 
to do to do positive reviews? I mean, do you write and, and and being a critic means that you can't trumpet everything. That sometimes you you have to you have to talk about what doesn't work with with something. And do you find yourself whenever you're writing for more mass market that you're that you're trying to show what is what is good in comics? Do you are you conscious of that, or do you try and do that? Um. For, for mass market, I mean, because, you know, if if I can only review five things at a time for the Washington Post or something, I'm going to take five projects that I think are really interesting and cool and worthwhile for one reason or another. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm going to love them completely or it's going to be unmitigated praise, but it's going to be stuff that I'm going to want to bring to the attention of that audience. Uh, it might in some cases, like, I, I, I do a more or less monthly comics review for a salon, and most of the things I write about are books that are things that I really care about. Occasionally I'll review something that uh, is important for one reason or another, or that has gotten a lot of attention that uh, I'm reviewing for that reason, and it sometimes is something that I care about, and sometimes it'll be something that I really like. Sometimes it will be something I really hate. I wrote about the, the 9-11 report graphic novel a year mm-hmm. or so ago. Sure. Oh, my God, that thing is terrible. <laughs> That's unbelievably bad. Um, so, you know, it's fun to do a hatchet job once in a while. On the other hand, doing a hatchet job, is, it's even trickier than writing a strongly positive review or a sort of middling review. Because if you're really attacking something, you have to make sure that absolutely everything you say is totally airtight justified. That makes it more fun to read. That's one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book, and, and, we'll, and we'll start talking about uh, um, reading comics, how graphic novels work and, and what they mean. It's, uh, and, I, and I love the book, and one of the reasons I enjoyed it was that even in your critique of, of certain artists or writers, you would... Uh, you would you would start off with what you really enjoyed about their work, and but you didn't shy away from um, from you know where they may have had missteps, and and I yeah. thought that it was very very balanced in um, in how you talked about you know individual works or or you know the entire works of a certain creator. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm nobody's publicist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, there's. Um, there's almost nothing in comics that I love totally without reservation. Like, there's, you know, Jim Woodring, I think it's fair to say, like, all of his Frank stuff I love without reservation. That's about as far as I'll go with that. Um, there's also not a lot that I think is totally devoid of value or meaning. So, you know, it's, it's, it's also not even... The, the point of criticism to me is not even necessarily is this good, is this bad, or even the consumer guide, like, do you want to spend your money on this or not? <laughs> um, that is a valuable purpose of some kinds of criticism. It's something that I do sometimes, but I also think one big use of criticism is uh, helping people understand a piece of art more thoroughly or to look at it from a different angle, or to get more out of it somehow, or to be, be a guide to some way of approaching it and understanding it. 
Uh, and that's the thing I'm really interested in doing. I can't always do it, but it's something that I aim for. Now, in the book, you you kind of it, it was split into two halves, which which I thought was interesting. Kind of the first half was your thoughts on on what comics are, you know, how you read them, why we read them, what they mean, and then the second half was a, a collection of you know, almost essays on not necessarily your favorite creators, uh, but a group of creators that that you feel have have left marks on the industry. Not, not creators that I think have left marks on the industry. Creators that have left marks on me. Okay. Can you talk to um to to why you decided to split the book like that? I want the essentially we, it was it was a marketing decision pretty much uh, because people who were looking at a book about comics, if you're coming in from the outside, you're going to want some sort of general like, what are these things? How do I look at them? Do you read the words or the pictures first? How do you do this? Uh, and I also, one model that I had actually is, uh, I've name dropped her a million times, so Pauline Kale, I lost it at the movies. Absolutely astonishing book of criticism. And that one too, the first is, the first half of the book is more kind of generalist essays about movies and what they are and what they mean. And then the second half is essays about particular movies and particular directors and particular filmmakers. And I thought, okay, that's, that's a really reasonable way of doing it. Have sure. one part being the general part and one part the specific part. And in the first half, one of the things that caught me about the book is that you're very conversational. It's not overly highbrow. It's it's very layman, and, and you set out kind of from the beginning. It's like you know this is this is not going to be an, an art snobs book about comics. This is you know this is some you know just really straightforward information and opinion on on why I like comics and 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 how I go about doing what I do. Actually, I totally fought with the tone of the book for so long. The first, the first draft, I did the first couple chapters I wrote, were so dry and so painfully academic, and it was just like a struggle to beat that out of there with a big stick. Um, to, try to, to try to make a voice that was more my voice than the voice from the mountaintop or the voice from the academic podium. Sure, you you, you, look, you look at a book like that, it's like reading comics, and you expect to open it up and, quite honestly, to be bored to death. So I was I was pleasantly yeah, surprised when I wasn't. That That's the struggle in the bookstore. You know, you, the person picks up a book, it's got you know an interesting-looking cover, and you read a couple pages, and you go, this is boring, and you put it back. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to have some have a voice that was engaging and have a voice that felt like me. And you know, having a voice that feels like you is not necessarily an easy thing to get. Um, so yeah, it, it took... There, there was some struggle in there, and I don't think I even pulled it off all the time, but I'm pretty happy with what there was. One of the things that, that caught me in the book was... You know, it's myself and and the other people that are a part of Around Comics. We kind of we kind of feel like we fall in in the middle ground of a lot of comic fans. There are comic fans that that will only read mainstream superhero comics, and there are comic fans that that have abandoned that and really only read um, you know independent and very very much uh, of the the artsy circuit of of independent comics. And what I what I enjoyed about your book is that you you know 
came right out and said, you know what, it's okay to like both of those. You can read you can read all comics. You don't have to segment yourself. And there's merit to, you know, all comics in one way or another. Right. Or there can be merit, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's still... You can say there's merit in all comics, but then along comes Countdown, too. <laughs> There's some... Mer- okay, yeah, you're right. Uh, <laughs> but it's okay. I, I'm, I'm teasing, but... Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's it's okay to like Green Lantern and Blankets. Yeah, um, or it's okay to like... Uh, it's okay to like the really good Green Lantern stuff. It's okay to like Blankets, and it's also okay to have some reservations about Blankets. Sure. There, there's, there seems to be a lot of that in in comics and in comics criticism that that there are there are folks that are um that will almost be I don't want to say venomous toward towards mainstream comics but there there is kind of a, a swell out there of if it's not an independent work then then it's not it's not something that is deserving of any sort of of critique and there there is some of that uh Really, in critical circles, that there's less of it than you might think. You know, there, there. I see a certain number of people who are, you know, hardcore, you know, art comics types who will go to some convention and, you know, drop a few hundred dollars on like early issues of Avengers or something. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the divide, the divide is not absolute, um, and it's probably less absolute than I, than I even made it out to be in the book. But it's it's nice to see when those things. Crossbreed with each other. We'll talk about the the second half of your book, which um, the way I, I approach, I read I read the first half of your book, kind of all you know uh, from beginning to end, and then kind of how I approached the second half of of reading comics was to kind of pick a creator that I was in the mood to to read about at that time. Right. Um, you know, I picked, uh, you know, part of a Saturday afternoon. I was like, ah, you know, um, I want to read a little bit about Steve Ditko. And so I read your chapter on Steve Ditko. Um, how did you, how did you narrow down the, to the group of creators that you picked to, to kind of highlight in your book? Partly was expedience. I think about half of those are, were rewritten from pieces I'd previously written one place or another. Um, part of it was I made a I made a short list of people that I really care about right now or was had been thinking a bunch about and felt like I had something to say about right now. And it wasn't even everybody that I felt like I had some stuff to say about. There's a bunch of chapters that got started and struggled with in the band. And there, there, I really wanted to do a Jim Woodring chapter. That's going to have to wait for the next book. <laughs> I really wanted to do something on Eric Shanauer and Age of Bronze. That's going to have to wait, too. Um, I tried and tried and tried to do something on, on uh, Keith Giffen and the Week of Superheroes five-year gap stuff, which I think is amazing, amazing superhero comics. Um, and that just failed to happen. Um, what I ended up with at some point was like, wow, I've got too much text for the amount of uh, the word count I was contracted for. It's time to start cutting. There's also a few chapters that ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, I might go back to them and try to rewrite them later. But the, the idea wasn't even to be like all of my favorites or all of the best or all of the ones that affected me most strongly. Just here's some comics that I think are interesting to talk about. Let's talk about them. 
And, and and you hit the you hit the big ones. Uh, your chapter on Grant Morrison was uh, I, I I really enjoyed that. And you know it's kind of hard to to do a book about comics without Alan Moore. And you had a very a uh, uh, very extensive chapter on him. So uh, you hit a lot well, I, of the. I, I, I did and I didn't. You know, there's no Jack Kirby chapter. There's no Air J chapter. There's no Robert Crumb chapter. There's no Osama Tezuka chapter. There's some really 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 tip top big names that. I didn't really write much about this time. You know, there'll be other books. Yeah, you know, you, you know something. You know, save uh, uh, Jack Kirby for volume two, right? Save Jack Kirby for when when I'm you know five years older and have a deeper understanding of Jack Kirby than I do now. <laughs> You, and, and believe me, there are Kirby fans out there that will uh, be uh, knocking down your door to enlighten you, <laughs> if they haven't oh, already. You know, you know they already are. Uh. <laughs> it's, uh, and, and obviously the, the people that you talked about in the book have, have a large body of work, and that's what kind of, you know, they, they deserve to be mentioned. Who are some folks that, uh, that are coming onto the comic scene right now that, uh, that you think are, are poised to, uh, to, to join some of those names? Um, let's see, there, there's, oh god, um, Sarah Oleksik, who's been working on a book called Ivy, who's, so I know her from Portland, I've seen a lot of her work around, uh, she's really, really, really good, I really like her stuff. Uh, besides Sarah Oleksik, I think Andres Arp is really, really fantastic. Uh, I think Dylan McConus is headed for really great things. Um... I'm really interested to see what Julia Wards does in the next few years. Uh, you notice all these people I've named are women so far? Yeah, yeah, um, it's very interesting. <laughs> this is because they are the people who are going to be taking over the world of comics completely by eight years from now. Uh, I mean, even if you just look at like the 15-year-old girls who are reading manga and doing comics for each other and posting them on their live journals and posting them on their MySpace pages and communicating with each other and building this community around each other. And they're teenagers. And by the time they're 23 or 24, they're going to be so good. Do you think that that mainstream comics will, are going to be, you know, even even a 50-50 split, male-female? I don't know. Are clamp mainstream comic creators? I think they are. Um, if you think of manga and English language manga derived stuff as the mainstream which it sure as heck looks like, looks like from the sheer number of people who are buying it uh, yeah that's where that's where it's going the people who are in the flight anthologies that stuff that is it's derived from manga it's derived from anime and in fact it's derived from those kinds of communities of people starting really really young and honing their craft and talking to each other online and critiquing each other and forming little publishing collectives, and all of a sudden you've got some pretty major talents coming out of it. You know, Cleo Chang. I can't wait to see like the first full-length uh, comics thing that Cleo Chang does. She's only done a couple short stories so far. Manga influenced artists that are making their way into um, you know independent comics and, and definitely mainstream comics. Do you think this is something that's going to continue to happen over the next decade and, and really kind of merge the two together? I really I really think it is. I really think that that's, that's something we're seeing starting to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's going to be happening a lot more as people who discovered this stuff as teenagers in the same way that you know, teenage boys used to discover Batman and Mad and drift into comics, doing their own comics from that, as those kids start getting older and getting better and making their own stuff, um, 
we're already just beginning to see it happen, and I think we're going to be seeing it happening a lot more. Another trend that, that we see is is the explosion of you know the bookstores. The bookstores are becoming more and more um, not not a replacement for the comic shops, but um, you know talking about manga, I think that that the the Borders and Barnes and Nobles have started to become the source where the younger generation is getting their comic books, and I think that's having a big effect on that. And don't forget about libraries too. Um, Graphic novels just cannot stop circulating at libraries. They go out and they go out and they go out. But what's happening you know, What's happening in bookstores is that it's a growing category, and bookstores will do anything for a growing category right now. Almost all their categories are shrinking. Comics, growing. So you know, there have been a couple of things that have been at the end of the wedge. Naruto being a giant hit means that a lot of bookstores are expanding their manga section, then they're expanding their graphic novel section. They notice that those are selling them and they expand more and more over time. Uh, Sin City, believe it or not, the Sin City movie meant that a lot of bookstores wanted to have the Sin City books, and the only way to get the Sin City books was basically to open an account with Diamond. Mm -hmm. And so they started opening accounts with Diamond and bringing in more Sin City-related stuff, and then bringing in other stuff since, you know, we've got this account open, why don't we order some other things too? Um, stuff like that happens bit by bit, incrementally, and you know, it's also a case of you know, comics publishers realizing that it took them so long to realize that this that if you keep it in print permanently, you can keep making money on it. At, the, yeah. at that point, now as as we see um, uh, comics and and graphic novels and trades and all the different you know bound ways that you can get comics into into bookstores, um, you as as a comics critic, have you seen an increase in in a call for uh, comic reviews and and people that are hungry for for comics uh, critiques? Has that impacted your business as a writer? Oh, God, yeah. Um, I mean, that, the fact, the ways that the comics industry has gone in the last 10 years is the reason that I'm able to do what I do for a living. Um, one person who I think is incredibly important in all this is Calvin Reed at Publishers Weekly. I've been working for Publishers Weekly for a few years, and his bright idea was pushing Publishers Weekly to cover a lot more comic stuff, which got bookstores and book buyers interested in it, and it's just sort of spiraled from there. And now there's Publishers Weekly Comics Week, which I write for too, which is their the free weekly email newsletter. Um, that and that's been huge. That pushed comics into bookstores more than they had ever been before. Um, there's more demand. There's more stuff coming out. There's more interest in writing about it. There's more people buying it. There's more demand. Repeat cycle. Well, Doug, I want to thank you very, uh, very much for spending some time with us this evening. If uh, if folks are looking for more of your writings, in addition to reading comics, uh, how graphic novels work and what they mean, where can they find you? Well, let's see. I've got another book called *Live at the Apollo*, which is about a performance that James Brown gave in Harlem one night during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I write about comics for uh, you know, Salon dot com. Uh, the set, sorry, SavageCritic.com, the Savage Critics website. A few other places. I'm doing a piece about comics and music for Spin right now. Uh, I do stuff about music for Rolling Stone and Blender. I write for a lot of places. I, Google me. 
people can uh, can pick up uh, reading comics at uh, at finer bookstores and uh, and I'm sure on the web at Amazon and uh, what 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 is your preferred place of where people can check out reading comics? How about readingcomics.net? There you go. There's an Am- there's an Amazon link on there, and uh, if people buy it off there, then you know I get those seventy five cents to feed my kids with. So readingcomics.net is the place to go. I uh, I highly suggest the book. It is a uh, very intelligent yet not highbrow look at comics and why we love them. Douglas, want to thank you so much and uh, and know that you are welcome back on Around Comics anytime. Thank you so much. Now let's get you ready for the week ahead with new trade paperback releases. Here is Collected Comics Library's Chris Marshall. Hey everybody, before I get to the list this week, I want to let you know where I get my information from, and that is comicslist.com. Over at that site on Monday nights around 5 o'clock Eastern, you can find the full list of not only the hardcovers and collected editions, but also what monthly comics are coming out from every publisher that is releasing something that week, whether it be in DVDs or T-shirts or even mass-market paperbacks. I'll give Chris a link to the website so you guys can go check that out yourself. But not only is it a great list for the lists that come out each week, but also it's an excellent news source. And Charlie is a good friend of mine, and I like to promote his site every once in a while. So let's get on with the list this week, and of course, books are coming out November 7th. Let's start with DC Comics, and it is DCU World War III. This is the World War III that was spun out of 52. This is not the World War III book that was spun out of the JLA a few years back. That can be confusing, too. Anyway, this World War III trade paperback is 18 bucks, and it collects Part 1, A Call to Arms, Part 2, the Valiant, Part 3, Hell is for Heroes, and Part 4, United We Stand. Next up, Green Lantern Corps, A Darker Shade of Green trade for 13. This collects Green Lantern Corps 7 through 13. Robin Teenage Wasteland trade collecting Robin 154 through 162. That is for 18 bucks. Green Arrow Road to Jericho trade for 18, collecting Green Arrow 66 through 75. And a pretty cool book this out that, well, we're expecting out anyway, is the Heroes hardcover. And there are two versions of this book. One cover is done by Jim Lee, and the other cover is done by Alex Ross. Everybody has seen the Alex Ross cover, but I don't think the Jim Lee one has been released to the public yet. Anyway, this hardcover will collect the online comics, including the introduction by Masa Oka, who is Hero in the series and all 34 chapters of Season 1 and all of Tim Sale's artwork as seen on the show. And it is for 30 bucks. A great book for any fan of not only Heroes, but also of Tim Sale's artwork. Over at Marvel, expected out this week is the Omega Flight Alpha 2 Omega trade. This is for 14 bucks, collecting the Omega Flight 1-5, through 5, plus the U.S. agent story from Civil War Choosing Sides. And another big collected edition out this week is the Marvel Comics Legacy of the 1960s through the 1990s handbook trade. This is for 20 bucks, and it is in the style of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. The profiles within each chapter cover everything published by the hallowed House of Ideas up until that point. 
We also have a reprint of Thor. This collects one through three of the new Straczynski Thor series, and it is called Rebirth. Over at Dark Horse, an excellent art of book. This time, it's the art of Matt Wagner's Grendel. It is the hardcover edition. One bit of news this week, that the Captain America by Ed Brubaker Omnibus has sold out. And Marvel is doing a second printing, and it is giving it a brand new variant cover. And the wraparound cover will be that of Captain America number 6. And the press release reads as follows. Marvel is pleased to announce that Captain America by Ed Brubaker Omnibus, collecting the Eisner and Harvey winning landmark run on Captain America, has sold out at Diamond, though copies may be available at the retail level. To satisfy demand for this critically acclaimed oversized hardcover collection, this Marvel Omnibus will return with a new cover exclusive to comic shops. This stunning wraparound cover features Captain America and the Winter Soldier in action as seen on both sides of the regular and variant covers of Captain America number 6 by artist series Steve Epting. It retails for $75 and will be on sale November 28th. And I actually like that new cover rather than the uh, the first cover. I'm not one to uh, like variants, but I may have to return my copy and try to get a copy of this one. We'll see if my LCS allows that. Anyway, for Around Comics, I'm Chris Marshall, Collected Comics Library. Chris Marshall is the host of the Collected Comics Library podcast. You can find the podcast, release schedules, and checklist of everything collected at collectedcomicslibrary.com. Let's take a look at some of the highlighted single issues that will be coming to local comic shops this week. Uh, please note that this is only a partial list, and shipping dates are subject to change without notice. Starting out with Dark Horse, Brian K. Vaughn continues his Faith and Giles storyline in Buffy the Vampire Slayer Season 8, Issue Number 8. Then we have a double shot of some Mike Mignola goodness. We have the Hellboy Darkness Calls number 6 of 6 miniseries wrapping up this week. And also Lobster Johnson, the Iron Prometheus, a favorite of the Around Comics crew. That is number 3 of 5. From DC this week, the all-new Adam, number 17. It's drawn, of course, by Mr. Mike Norton, so make sure and check that out and support all of Mike's comics. We also have Jonah Hex, number 25, under the Vertigo imprint, Exterminators, number 23, and Jason Aaron's Scout, number 11. Vinyl Underground gets another shot to hook readers with its second issue coming out this week, and also the penultimate issue of Why the Last Man. That's number 59 of what will be a 60-issue series. It looks like this is going to be a pretty strong week from Marvel. Annihilation Conquest, number one of six, is coming out this week, as well as Astonishing X-Men, number 23. Under the icon imprint is the Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips series Criminal with its 10th issue. Also coming out is Fantastic Four, number 551. Howard the Duck, number 2 of 4. Ed Brubaker and Matt Fraction's Contest of Immortal Weapons continues in The Immortal Iron Fist, number 10. More insight into The Secret Invasion can probably be found in The New Avengers Illuminati as it concludes with issue 5 of 5. The supervillain team-up, Modox 11, also concludes this week with number 5 of 5. And we see Matt Fraction's The Order, number 4. 
and that'll take care of this week's highlighted single issue releases. portion of the show where I answer your questions. Uh, right now I am in my brother's office in his apartment building in Milwaukee. I went to a wedding last night and my cousin Jill, congratulations to her and her new husband Daniel. Uh, we had a fantastic time. Uh, open bar was nice, though it uh, led to me being slightly tired this morning, but I got an extra hour of sleep and I spent that extra hour thinking deeply about this question. Uh, also, my brother's office is a freaking mess. I mean, I remember when we were kids and we used to share a room that he was also this mess. And he's got tons of notebooks. Like, he's an insane man. But don't tell him I said that because he's very sensitive about being such a pack rat. But, out of the question. Uh, this comes to us from John Van Atta, who asks, What are your favorite songs with comic book references? And do you think Gotta Make Way for the Homo Superior and Bowie's Oh You Pretty Things Counts? Did Stan invent that term? Enjoying the new format? Thanks, John. Well, actually, this sort of struck me uh, as being a great question to ask, because I'm sorry, I thought, who... First of all, um, I started thinking about songs that had comic book references, and I think my favorite one, and not necessarily has anything to do with the comic book reference, but because I really love the song, um, it's because it's one of my favorite bands, is Waiting for Superman by The Flaming Lips from their the Soft Bulletin album. I just love the imagery of someone singing and sort of apologizing for the fact that Superman can't do what he's supposed to do. He can't save the world. And it's not because he isn't trying, it's just too much for him. And it sort of portrays, um, to me, like a certain melancholy, a certain sadness, but there's also a certain amount to that song of that we're supposed to pick up the slack a little bit and that we can't always depend on somebody else to swoop down and save us all the time. I love that entire album, though, by the way, too. The Soft Bulletin's one of my favorite albums of all time. So I recommend, you know, maybe that'll be my pick when I do my picks for the Edutainment Center. That's the name I'm going for with the uh, Club of the Club month, which I think is a horrible name. Uh, the second part of that question is actually extremely fascinating. The part about the Homo Superior, and I started thinking... Who didn't coin that phrase? So, you know, I did a little bit of internet research, and actually the first time that the term homo superior was used, as far as, you know, most researchers can tell, was in the book Odd John, a story between Jest and Ernest. Uh, it's a 1935 science fiction novel by the British author Olaf Stapleton. Uh, he explores the themes of superhuman sort of creating a utopian society and how it falls apart and how the universe sort of doesn't care about whether or not 
your own merits, whether or not you're superhuman, whether or not you're super intelligent, uh, things will still fall apart for you, and there's sort of the underlying si- sadness to the universe. So it's, uh, I thought it was interesting. I never even heard of this book. But it's apparently still in print. You can still get it. It's called Odd, Odd John by Olaf Stapleton. And as I was thinking about it, I also thought, extremely interesting, because science fiction, I think, ties in so much to our current comic book superhuman culture. You know, the golden age of comic books, you saw a lot of characters that were maybe more sort of magical in nature. Uh, And then when the Silver Age came along, you saw an influx of a lot of people whose interests were science fiction. Uh, People like Julie Schwartz, John Broom, these guys all came from a science fiction background and had done some of the Golden Age comics but we're really more interested in that science fiction-y element to it. Hence, we have Green Lantern being given his ring by aliens, or Spider-Man gaining his powers by being bitten by a radioactive spider. More sort of uh, science elements rather than you know, finding magical helmets or uh, ancient gods giving you winged harnesses, which to this day I still think pretty much runs throughout all of the comic books that we read. I mean, it's still a science fiction-y based genre. I mean, it's Superman, the first one. He's an alien, so you've always had a little bit of that. I'm so interested in this Odd John book that I think I'm probably going to order it and give it a read, because uh, I love that concept. I mean, it's the basis of most <laughs> comic books, you know. What happens when you're given superhuman abilities? I mean, does the human nature override any benefits you have? Is there inherent weakness to us that we can't overcome certain things? If we're given the tools to overcome our own weaknesses, can we do it? Uh, So that's the question. That was the answer. Uh, Feel free to send any you got to Tom at Around Comics. I'm more than willing to answer any of them. I like music questions. You know, if you ask me another one, I might talk a little bit about uh, Donovan. He mentions Green Lantern. I like that. So I'll talk to you guys next week. Goodbye. Twice a month, John Mayo breaks down the sales numbers and market trends to give us a more informed idea of what's happening on the business side of comics. This week, John takes a look at the top 100 trades. Here's a breakdown of the sales of the top 100 trades reported by Diamond for September 2007, based on what Diamond shipped to retailers during the month. The estimated total volume of the list was 260,000 trades which is up by 20,000 copies from last month and up by 43,000 copies from September 2006. At full cover price, this works out to an estimated value of $4,489,000, 
which is a decrease of $145,000 from the previous month and an increase of $810,000 from September 2006. The publisher with the largest percentage of the top 100 trades for September was DC Comics, which had 31.02% of the total units sold with 30 items on the list. The top selling item for DC Comics was 52 Volume 3 in slot 4 with an estimated 8,000 copies. This was down 2,800 copies from the estimated total reported sales of the previous volume. Marvel Comics had the second highest total number of units with 78,000 copies accounting for 30.04% of the total top trades sold in September. They did this with 25 different items on the list. The top selling item for Marvel Comics was Marvel Zombies Army of Darkness in Rank 2 with an estimated 10,000 copies. Dark Horse came in with the third highest piece of the pie with 9.69% of the total units and had 10 different items on the list. The top selling item for Dark Horse was Hellboy Volume 7, Troll, Witch, and Others in position number 5 with an estimated 7,100 copies. The title with the biggest increase in sales over the previous volume for the month was Miss Marvel Volume 2 Civil War in slot 23, which gained an estimated 1,000 units, resulting in an estimated 3,100 copies sold. For Around Comics, I'm John Mayo. John Mayo writes the Mayo Report 2007-08 Top Comics each month, which examines the sales estimates and market trends for comic books, graphic novels, and collected editions. He's also the host of the Comic Book Page podcast. You can find his articles at comicbookresources.com and his podcast and sales estimates charts at comicbookpage.com. Around Comics is proud to help support the Hero Initiative. Hero creates a financial safety net for yesterday's creators who need emergency medical aid, financial support for essentials of life, and an avenue back into paying work. It's a chance for all of us to give back something to the people who have given us so much enjoyment. For more information, visit HeroInitiative.org or call 310-909-7809. Comics aren't just in comic shops and bookstores anymore. You can find thousands of web comics online. And Jeremy Mullins is here to save you hours of searching the internet by telling us where to find the best and brightest in the ever-changing world of web comics. Today I'd like to present, for your consideration, ButternutSquash.net by Canadian creators Ramon Perez and Rob Koffler. This is a semi-autobiographical webcomic about Ramon, a coffee-loving cartoonist, Rob, a part-time employee at a sex shop, and their various friends. The goofy humor of Butternut Squash, the camaraderie between these young men, and their never-ending quest for coffee, comics, and boom should strike a strong chord of recognition within any comic fan. Butternut Squash features some of the very best drawings of any webcomic. Perez's style is classic but not overly derivative, and demonstrates a masterful understanding of the physicality of his subjects. In many of the webcomics out there, art is often stiff, relying too heavily on templates. 
but every character of Butternut Squash is fluid and displays a vast array of natural facial expressions and gestures. The coloring, partly done by co-author Koffler, should also be mentioned. It's bright, crisp, and very solid. I should make note that with strip number 150, the creative team will be taking a hiatus to reorganize. In the meantime, however, a series of guest artists will be contributing strips starting on November 15th. So check out butternutsquash.net, B-U-T-T-E-R-N-U-T-S-Q-U-A-S-H.net by Ramon Perez and Rob Koffler. For Around Comics, I'm Jeremy W. Mullins. Jeremy Mullins is a professor of sequential art at the Savannah College of Art and Design. You can find more about the school and their programs of study at www.scad.edu. Available for order now from Ape Entertainment is the Fablewood Anthology Volume 1. This beautiful 144-page original graphic novel contains 13 complete fantasy stories from the sword and sorcery to slice of life and features the creations of Ryan Otley, the artist of Invincible, and Manny Trembley, flight alumni J.P. Ahonen and Sarah Mencina, and Chris Studebaker from his Day Prize-nominated tale, which Dave Sim called Evocative, Astur, and Expressionistic. For the preview of the Fablewood Anthology and tons of other ape goodness, visit our friends at www.apecomics.com. A letter from Spider-Man's baby. Hi, Tom. It's great to hear that there is some interest in my whereabouts. First, I have to tell people to stop asking my mom if I'm still inside her. This has been a big problem with Dr. Octopus, who claims he needs hands-on proof that I no longer reside in my mother's womb. She is not my grand aunt May, and would never hook up with a man with extra arms. Now that we have that out of the way, I can tell you where I've been. In true Parker fashion, I'm living with my uncle Ben Riley, and have decided to follow my father's footsteps and fight crime. Being young and super cute, I can attract pedophiles left and right. I like to think of it as my own superpower. In between daycare and naps, I chat up old men online and, ron- and arrange rendezvous with them when they show up. Uncle Ben, make sure they never touch anyone that way again, ever. Whatever that means. Well, I need to go now. Bye, Tom. Spider-Man's baby. When he's not writing the continuing adventures of Catwoman, Will Pfeiffer is a DVD and movie reviewer for the Rockford Register Star. Here's Will to tell us about what's happening in DVDs. Hi, this is Will Piper bringing you the week's DVD news and recommendations. What, like you're going to go outside and get some fresh air? Sure you are. Sure you are. This week you've got your choice of box sets of complete classic TV series to choose from. The Seinfeld set has all nine seasons, plus all the bonus features previous box sets have included, and, and a coffee table book looking back at the show. No word if it can be used as an actual coffee table, like that book Kramer wrote. The Seinfeld box set will set you back a cool $212.99, by the way. For about $10 more, you can have the complete X-Files box set, which includes every episode of that geek classic series, plus plenty of bonus features. Conspiracy theories, sexual tension, and a plot so complicated it would take a lifetime to figure it out. 
What more do you want in a TV show? I don't have a price on this week's third big TV release, but really, is any price too high to pay for the complete full house? No. No, it is not. Bob Sagan in his clean mode, John Stamos in his furry mode, and the Olsen twins getting older and creepier right before your eyes. That, as they say, is entertainment. Finally, the best reviewed movie of 2007 hits the stores on Tuesdays, and no, I'm not talking about Good Luck Chuck. It's Ratatouille, the latest from Pixar. It's from Brad Bird, the man behind The Incredibles and The Iron Giant, so it's bound to be good. Hell, it's bound to be great. This week's cult DVD recommendation is Who Wants to Kill Jesse? A crazy little black and white comedy from, of all places, Prague. And it was made in 1966, when Prague was still stuck behind the Iron Curtain. It's a sort of movie that Charlie Kaufman, the guy who wrote Adaptation and Being John Malkovich, might write today. A scientist creates a way to remove elements from dreams, then she uses it on her own husband. But he's obsessed with the blonde babe who stars in the comic book Who Wants to Kill Jesse, and now she's in the real world. He's happy, of course, but following her out of Fantasyland are a superhero and a cowboy, both eager to wreak havoc in reality. As if the movie wasn't strange enough already, all those comic book characters speak using big word balloons that float over their heads and have to be read. It's the movie that reveals what the world would be like if comic books came to life. Mainly, they'd be a colossal pain in the ass. That's the DVD Report, and this is Will Pfeiffer for Around Comics. You can find Will's written reviews at the Rockford Register Star by visiting go.rrstar.com and going to the entertainment section. You can also visit Will's blog at willpiper.com and remember to read Catwoman every month. That'll take care of another Monday edition of Around Comics, the Comic Culture Podcast. Make sure to come back on Thursday for Around Comics, the Comic Culture Roundtable. It's an informal and entertaining roundtable discussing the world of comics and pop culture. You can visit us online at www.aroundcomics.com. You can contact the show via email at info at aroundcomics.com. You can also visit us at MySpace and Comicspace. And if you are inclined to do so, you can leave us a review at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for listening today and making Around Comics your source for the best comic book news, reviews, and opinions. We'll be back again on next Monday for another edition of Around Comics, the comic culture podcast. In the meantime, we'll be everywhere in and around comics. Views expressed in the interviews or by guests of the show are solely those of the individuals expressing them and may not reflect the opinions of Around Comics. Any reproduction, retransmission, or rebroadcast without the express written consent of Around Comics is strictly prohibited. All content presented in this program is the sole property of Around Comics, and this has been an Around Comics production, copyright 2007. I know you didn't love it, baby. I know you did me wrong. Let me come home.